Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Anna Tosteson, and it's my pleasure to um, introduce our uh, grand round speaker this morning, uh, Dr. Samir Saneji. Um, he uh, joined us um, in 2010, um, and he's an assistant professor now at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. I'll tell you a few um, words about his background uh, before I read the required um, uh, items for a grand rounds um, conflict of interest statements. And I'd like to um, also um, welcome our off-site attendees. Um, Samir did his undergraduate uh, training at the University of Chicago, where he earned a degree in mathematics. Um, he then went on to uh, pursue a master's degree in statistics at Columbia University. And um, for several years after that, actually went to work for the US Air Force as a senior operations analyst, um, studying um, having something to do with B-2 stealth bombers. Uh, we were fortunate, though, that um, his interests uh, in mathematics uh, took him back around to health. And he entered a PhD program in, in demography at Princeton. Um, and uh, following his uh, dissertation work on demogra demographic forecasting of mortality, went to pursue uh, our Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program at the University of Pennsylvania, where he um, applied some of his forecasting skills uh, to understanding the um, burden of colorectal uh, cancer and how colorectal cancer screening could affect that burden. And today, he's going to be speaking with us about assessing progression and reducing uh, the burden of cancer mortality from 1985 to 2005. I should also mention, though, that while he's been here, he's been uh, very active in the uh, comparative effectiveness work of the um, cancer control program, as well as in um, some of the smoking uh, cessation work. He is uh, currently a Synergy Scholar, uh, pursuing translational research to understand um, how lung cancer screening uh, will affect the population as it's rolled out. And I know he's been a, a close collaborator with uh, Dr. Bill Black in the evaluation of lung cancer screening. So let me, um, before turning things over, um, read these statements. Um, Dr. Soneji does not have any financial interest in the subject matter of his talk today. He reports he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. He attests that he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So let me turn it over to you, Samir. Thanks, Anna. Uh, is this mic working? Yeah. Great. So as Anna mentioned, a warm welcome to our, our guests and our colleagues and friends at Manchester and St. Johnsbury. A warm welcome to my parents who are watching live. <laughs> my mom is missing her water Zumba class. <laughs> Every day. I look forward to retirement as well. Uh, so as Anna mentioned, my name is Samir Soneji, and I'm here at TDI and at the Cancer Center. Uh, also, as Anna mentioned, I have no financial interests in the topic I'm discussing today. So this work is based on a paper that came out this month in Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, with the same title, Assessing Progress in Reducing the Burden of Cancer Mortality, uh, with two colleagues, Iran Beltran-Sanchez at University of Wisconsin and Dr. Harold Socks here at Dartmouth. And uh, it was funded in part through the Synergy program. So I thought I would start off with a, a general overview of what I'll talk about and explain how I'm thinking about the problem of assessing progress on the burden and provide you answers to, to whether or not there's been progress on the burden of cancer. And that way you can see how the rest of the talk flows. So, the so-called war on cancer started as early as the 1971 National Cancer Act, although many would suggest that it started much earlier with Mary Lasker and the American Cancer Society. But we're starting in 1971 uh, when President Nixon signed uh, the National Cancer Act. And since 1971, there's been a lot of concern that there's been stagnant or at best modest declines in cancer mortality rates. 
So despite creating the National Cancer Institute and a whole industry of cancer-related research, we haven't seen, apparently, that much progress in cancer mortality rates. And so that's created lots of questions about, about progress. And what we're going to argue, or what I'll argue, and what we argued in the paper, is that perhaps we're not seeing progress because the previous ways we've, we've measured progress have been inadequate. And when I mean progress, I mean progress over time. And when I'm talking about burden, I mean a population level burden. So considering cancer and other causes of death that compete for an individual's mortality. So these concerns about progress are nothing new. They've been raised by the National Cancer Institute and its extramural committee in 1990. And what the extramural committee suggested was that we measure progress against the burden over time by looking at a demographic measure, a, a population level measure. And that's the person years of life lost. And what that means, uh, the person years of life lost is how many years of life on average somebody would live in the absence of cancer. So imagine a world without any cancer mortality. How long, on average, would I live counterfactually in this imaginary world? And what it does is it, that measure accounts for both cancer mortality and other causes of death. And so uh, what the extramural committee suggested was that we start to measure progress by considering both competing causes of death, cancer and everything else. Uh, so what we can do with that measure is we can look at the direct progress of cancer mortality rates and the indirect progress uh, from other causes. So by using this measure and the methods that we developed, what we find is that, in fact, the US has achieved sustained progress against the burden of many leading cancers, lung, prostate, breast, colon, as early as the 70s. So very different from what, what others have concluded because of the types of measures that we're using. So what we do is we reveal more accurately the aggregate contribution of cancer prevention and screening and treatment on progress against cancer. And then finally, what I'll do in the talk is use this new measure to assess internally the value of US cancer care. And so I'll compare the value of prostate cancer care, of colon, of breast, and of lung. And what we find when we look at the value is that the most cost-effective progress has occurred against the burden of lung cancer mortality. And the, well, it's not the most, uh, but the most of what we've looked at. So it is the most. Uh, cost-effective against the burden of lung cancer. And the least cost-effective progress has occurred for the burden of, of breast cancer. So let me start you off with a demographic primer. and. This result is that life expectancy has been steadily rising over the last four decades. And so what that means for, for everybody, especially cancer researchers, is that more and more people are living longer and longer. So as, as less and less people die of other causes of death, less and less people die of cardiovascular disease, of stroke, uh, of accidents, more and more people are alive longer and are then exposed to the risk of cancer. So uh, for example, Male life expectancy at birth in 1970 was 67 years and rose to 76 years in 2010. Female life expectancy increased from 75 years to more than 81 years in that 40-year time span. So people are living longer. And as people live longer, they're exposed to the risk of older age diseases, such as cancer. Another way to look at this is, how many people, or what proportion of the population, will reach age 65 plus? And that number, that proportion, has been steadily rising over time. So in 1970, 64% of the population was elderly, over 65. And that number increased to 81% for males uh, in 2010. For females, a very similar story. 80% of females were over 65 in 1970. And that number increased to 88% in 2010. So what's happening demographically is that the population is shifting to older ages because they're not dying of other diseases. And the other demographic primer is it's so simple, it's, uh, it's obvious, and yet we often forget it, is that we all die of something. 
And so if I'm not dying of a stroke at 50, if I'm not dying of a car accident at, at 25, uh, I'm exposed to the risk of dying of cancer. So the reason why many have concluded that there's been little, if any, progress against cancer mortality is that they've been looking at cancer mortality rates. And so over this 40-year time span, there's been a remarkable decline of more than 60% in cardiovascular disease. And yet cancer has only declined 12% in that same time period. And the vast majority of that decline happened after 1990. So these are standardized mortality rates. And the top two dashed lines are cardiovascular disease. And here you see this 60% decline for males and for females. And for cancer, what you notice is that it's either been stagnant or even increasing. And then only after 1990 is this, this modest decline. And the same story with cancer for females. It's been stagnant and then only slightly declining. And so you can see why many have concluded that there's been very little progress against the burden of cancer when they compare it to progress against the burden of cardiovascular disease. But what we're arguing is that we really need to think about other causes of death concurrently with cancer mortality rates. Because what's happening is, as less and less people are dying of heart disease, more and more people are being diagnosed and dying of, of cancer. So the other half to progress is stagnant cancer mortality rates and a lot of money. So 1971 established the National Cancer Institute. Uh, Direct funding to, to Congress, <coughs> NCI appropriations don't go through NIH. Uh, so there was this rapid rise in cancer expenditures, a doubling uh, in the first few years after the Cancer Act, and then cycles throughout. But there's been obviously a lot of money uh, spent on cancer. And the natural question is, how much progress have we seen as a result of this, this investment? So the first set of researchers who formally asked whether or not there's been progress against the burden of cancer uh, were Baylor and Smith. And they, uh, they had a very simple title to their, their paper, Progress Against Cancer, uh, in New England Journal in 1986. And then in 1990, the National Cancer Institute formed an, an extramural committee uh, to look at progress against cancer and to more formally assess how we measure progress. And this is the basis for our work. Uh, so they set, the state, uh, they set a setting of uh, a research gap they identified. And it hadn't yet been addressed uh, until our paper. And so we, we really took their motivation and their results and formalized it. So Baylor and Smith wrote Progress Against Cancer in 1986. They answered their question in 1997. And what they answered was, no, cancer has been undefeated. David Cutler wrote, are we finally winning the war on cancer in 2008? Uh, in addition to academic manuscripts, cancer's death rates have also attracted the attention of the popular press. And so uh, the New York Times wrote a paper, or an article, really, uh, with the same story, that there's been very little progress against cancer. And this question continues. And so we're asking the same set of questions. Are we winning the war on cancer? Is there progress? But we're looking at it, and we're measuring progress differently. So how do people measure progress? Oftentimes, progress is measured through cancer survival times, so the time between diagnosis and death, and standardized mortality rates. So they take a set of mortality rates, and they standardize it to a common age distribution. So you have a single number, and you look at that number over time. So standardized mortality rates are what you saw declining steadily for cardiovascular disease and stagnantly for, for cancer. So as measures of progress, these are both reasonable. That as measures of progress, with the caveats of, of lead time bias and over diagnosis and length time bias, uh, cancer survival times and mortality rates are reasonable measures of progress because they assess the direct effect of cancer prevention, screening, and treatment. So they're OK for progress, but they're not good measures of burden. 
And the reason why we think they're not good measures of burden is that they don't explicitly include other causes of death. So other causes of death don't affect cancer standardized mortality rates. They don't affect cancer survival times. Right? So they're good measures of progress, bad measures of burden. Now here's a measure that the NCI Extramural Committee suggested, which is the person years of life lost due to cancer. And what that is is the, the gain in life expectancy. So how long on average somebody would live in the absence of cancer death. Right. So there's a world without cancer, uh, without cancer death, and it's the, the, the difference of how long I would live with cancer and how long I would live in a world without cancer. <coughs> so as a measure of progress, it's not a good measure because changes in the burden of cancer are confounded with changes in non-cancer <coughs> mortality rates. So I'm going to show you an example of how that occurs, but at this point, the important point to remember is that it, person years of life lost are not a good measure of progress, but they're a really good measure of burden. And they're a good measure of burden because they include changes in other causes of death. Because it's the person years of life lost, so how long I would live in the absence of cancer, also depends on the other causes of death that are competing for my mortality. So if they're really high, the difference in life would be very low. So person years of life lost, bad measure of progress, good measure of burden. So the NCI Extramural Committee identified this research gap and challenged the research community to identify both a measure of progress and a measure of burden. So what we do in our paper is we fill that gap. We utilize a measure that quantifies the individual contributions of the two factors that affect changes in the burden of cancer. And those two factors are, as you would suspect, cancer mortality rates and other cause mortality rates. So we account for changes in both of these, uh, these mortality rates. And in doing so, we can then assess the progress of cancer mortality and changes in its burden. And we can decompose those changes into what's due to changes in cancer itself and indirectly from changes in other causes of death. So I should mention, feel free to have, if you have any questions of clarification or a substance, ask them now or uh, there'll be time afterwards. Yeah. Uh, the, the graph that talked about the percentage of elder, people over 65 seemed off to me. There's no way that it's 80% of people are not over 65. Uh, it is. Uh, well, I just checked the US Census no, it's the percentage of people who survive past 65. Yeah. Right, so it's the number of 65-year-olds, number of 66-year-olds, number of 67-year-olds, and so forth, divided by the number of people alive. So life expectancy is, let's, let's make it easy, let's say it's 70 years. That means half the, the population survives till 70, and the other half <laughs> survives after 70. So life expectancy has been steadily increasing, and we're, we're an old population. We are... <coughs> The U.S., Canada, all of Europe is, a, is an elderly population. The, the expectation that you will reach 65. So I, I, I think I see your point. The expectation that you or your birth cohort will reach 65 is actually higher than that. Because I was, I, I'm, I'm birth cohort of 1976. But I mean, 8 out of 10 people are not over 65 in the United States. It's nowhere close to it. No, not if that birth cohort was cross-sectionally. If we only looked at a single birth cohort and we aged them over time, 80% of, of that population would be 65 plus. Okay. Right, so we're an older population, we're getting older. Uh, and as we get older, we're exposed to the risk of older age diseases such as cancer. So that process, what's happening with other causes of death and with cancer, affect changes in the burden of cancer. So this is a method slide, and there's no equations at all. I only have one equation at the end, but it's, there's no math here. So I want to show you conceptually how the burden matters for both changes in cancer and changes in other causes of death. 
So let's imagine a hypothetical world in which cancer mortality rates are completely constant and non-cancer mortality rates declined. And it doesn't even need to be hypothetical. This is very similar to what we observed over the last 40 years with cardiovascular disease and with cancer. Cardiovascular disease was steadily declining and cancer was flat. Right? So nothing happened with cancer mortality rates between time one and time two. It was completely flat. On the other hand, other causes of death that compete for an individual's mortality decline steadily from time one and two. Now let's look at life expectancies. So the first set of life expectancies are based on time one. And let me walk you through each one of these bars. So this is the life expectancy with what's actually observed. Now let's get rid of cancer. Cancer contributed some mortality. So if you get rid of it, overall there's less mortality. If there's less mortality, life expectancy is higher. So the difference between these two is the burden of cancer. It's the potential years of life lost. It is, on average, how long somebody would live in the absence of cancer. And they would live longer. Right? Because we got rid of cancer, so there's less mortality in the population overall. So that means the burden lessens, so there's more to gain. Now time two. There's a couple points here. Time two, you'll notice that all of these life expectancies, both of these, are higher than time one. And that's because overall, there's less mortality at time two, because other causes have declined. So life expectancy is higher at time two than at time one, because other causes declined. Now, if we get rid of cancer, the gain, the delta, that PYLL2, is even is even greater. And it's even greater because cancer at time two is more important. It, it, cut, it is a higher proportion of deaths than at time one. Because it's flat, but the other causes are declining. So in a relative sense, cancer contributes more death at time two than it did at time one. So that's why the gain is even greater. So this is this uh, the indirect part of of decomposing the, the burden of cancer. It matters both what happens to cancer and with other causes. So now let's look at the gain in life expectancy that could occur in the absence of cancer. This bar is this difference. And this bar, which is greater, is the difference at time two. And again, the growth, rather the, the, the burden, is greater at time two because cancer represents more deaths at time two than it does at time one. So now let's look at the, the difference in the difference, the growth in the burden. And here's the, the method that we developed and we implemented. We decompose the growth in the burden, the difference in the difference, into the two contributing factors, uh, other causes and cancer. And so this growth in the burden can only be due to changes in other causes of death. Because nothing happened to cancer. Cancer was completely flat. So here's an example of a worsening burden of cancer that has nothing to do with cancer, has entirely everything to do with other causes of death. And that's what's going on in the population. That's why people have concluded that there hasn't been much progress in cancer, because they're looking at this growth in the burden. But what they didn't realize at the time, and what we now show, is that this growth in the burden is actually due to the indirect benefit of advancements in care of other diseases, not to cancer itself. So that's our method, pictorially. And what we're going to do is, is, for the next couple of slides, look through each one of these cancers and look at actual numbers. So are there any questions about this, this method? It's really the key to the decomposition. We decompose the change in the burden, the difference in the difference, uh, into changes in cancer mortality and, and other causes. So our data comes from SEER. Uh, we look at cardiovascular disease, so heart disease, hypertension, stroke. 
leading cancers for males, colon, lung, and prostate. Leading cancers for females, colon, lung, and breast. And we also look at incidence-based mortality rates. So unlike regular population-level mortality rates, we only consider a death from cancer if it occurred within 10 years of the diagnosis. So if a cancer was diagnosed in 1980, but the person died in 1995, and the death certificate may have said prostate cancer, we don't consider that a prostate cancer death. We wanted to <coughs> avoid the bias with death certificate ascertainment uh, with cancer. Uh, we also vary this window, and we look at population-level cancer mortality rates, and we reach the same substantive conclusions. And we get our population data uh, through the census vis-a-vis SEER. So here's the first example of uh, the, the first result, and that's of male lung cancer. And so the conclusion we draw from male lung cancer is, is that there's been sustained progress against the burden of male lung cancer since the mid-'80s. So let me walk you through these sets of results. This is the burden uh, of male lung cancer. So in 1970, if you had removed male lung cancer, males on average would have lived 0.71 years higher. You get rid of male lung cancer, males would have lived 0.7 years average longer. In 1975, if you got rid of male lung cancer, males would have lived 0.85 years longer. So that's a difference of 0.14 years. So what you see is that the burden of male lung cancer has been worsening uh, since 1990 and then it started to decline. So this isn't a new result. We, we've known for a long time that the burden of lung cancer has gotten worse and then it's steadily improved. What is the new result is why this has occurred. So before I'd mentioned that if you got rid of male lung cancer in 1970, life expectancy would have been 0.7 years higher. In 85, it would have been 0.85 years higher. What contributed to that difference of 0.14 years? And what you're going to see here is a series of bars, blue and red. The blue is the contribution of lung cancer, and the red is the contribution of all other causes of death. So this is the direct effect, and this is the indirect effect. The direct effect of cancer and the indirect effect of all of the other causes that are competing for another, an individual's death. And what we found is that that 0.14 year difference, 0.85 minus 0.71, half of that was due to worsening lung cancer mortality rates, and the other half was due to improving other cause mortality rates. So one way to describe this is to say you, you can't blame all of that worsening burden on cancer. You can only blame half of it on cancer. Because the other half actually was other causes improving, so exposing more and more people over those five years to the risk of lung cancer. So a very similar story in the next time period, the late 70s. The, the, benefit, uh, the, the burden worsened because male lung cancer rates worsened. And then starting in 1985, you start to see these bars, these blue bars, become negative. And negative here means that the burden declined. And so we want a lower burden. We, progress is when you see these bars to be negative. These blue bars are negative. These positive red bars represent the indirect effects of other causes of death, which, which raise the burden. And so you can think of this tension between lung cancer and other causes of death. And they're competing for changes in the burden. So by the time you get out to the 90s, what you see is that lung cancer contributed to more and more of the decrease in the burden. It's, it's not being fully offset. It's only being partially offset by the indirect effect of changes in other causes of death. So for male lung cancer since the mid-'80s, you start to see sustained, consistent progress that have to do with lung cancer treatment prevention. It's, there wouldn't be screening at this time, but it would be treatment and prevention. So now let's look at the progress against the burden of male colorectal cancer. And 
for colorectal cancer, what we find is that there's sustained progress since the mid-70s. So the burden of colorectal cancer increased uh, until about 1985, and then it started to decrease. So that's not a new result. We know that the burden of, of colorectal cancer has, has been relatively flat compared to, uh, say, lung cancer, breast cancer. But what contributed to this change in the burden? A lot of that increase in the burden had nothing to do with colon cancer itself. It had to do with the indirect effect of changes of declining other causes of death. So that's why you see these positive red bars. So here's a good example. The, the positive benefit of changes in, in colon cancer mortality rates were exactly offset by equally positive indirect changes in other causes of death. So here's an example of offset. There was no change in the burden, seemingly, but there actually was. Those changes just offset each other. And now in the mid-80s and the 90s, there was only a partial offset. So in the last time period, 2000 to 2004, declining colon cancer rates from prevention, <laughs> screening, and treatment reduced the burden of colon cancer by uh, four hundredths of a year and was only partially offset by two hundredths of a year by changes in the care of other causes of death. So you start to see this tension. And for many cancers in the 80s and the 90s, cancer starts to pull more of the decline in the burden than the offset does for other causes of death. So here is the burden of prostate cancer. And what we found is that there's been sustained reduction in the burden of prostate cancer since the 90s. So again, the burden of prostate cancer increased steadily till about 1990 and then declined. Now, what caused that burden? Two things could cause the burden to increase. Uh, it could be that cancer rates got worse. That's possible. Or it could be that other causes got better. And that's what increased the burden of prostate cancer. <clears throat> and in the first couple of time periods, prostate cancer mortality rates did worsen, and other cause mortality rates improved. But then right around 1990 or so, you start to see the change. And that's why we say that the progress started uh, right around 1990. And it more than offset the indirect effects of changes in other causes of death. For female lung cancer, we, we note that the progress starts later than for male lung cancer. So the, the burden of female lung cancer increased and then was steady. Now, a lot of people have, have looked at these results and, and have concluded stagnation, that not much has changed in the burden of female lung cancer. And what we find is that there has been change, but this change has just been offset completely. So, in the, in the mid-90s, the albeit small improvement in the burden of female lung cancer was more than offset, or actually equally offset, by the change in other causes, and the same story in 2000 to 2004. So what seemingly seems like stagnation is actually an equal <laughs> offset, that there has been progress, but that progress has been offset by improvements in other causes of death. And if we look at the burden of female colorectal cancer, like male colorectal cancer, we find that the burden has been consistently declining uh, since the mid-70s. So the burden has been declining. And improvements in the care of colorectal cancer for females has directly contributed to that decline. So starting as early as 1970s, these blue bars have consistently reduced the burden. So it's the direct contribution of colon cancer prevention, screening, and treatment. And then with female breast, the burden has increased uh, from 1970 to 1990. And breast cancer sometimes contributed to that burden. So worsening breast cancer mortality rates sometimes contributed to increases in the burden. And at other times, the increase in the burden was due to other causes of death improving. The, the indirect benefits, the indirect offsets. 
And then since 1990, the burden decreased. And <laughs> breast cancer largely contributed to that decrease. So improvements in breast cancer prevention, screening, and treatment largely contributed to the decline in the burden of breast cancer. So we also looked at racial disparities, which have been studied for a long time. And the conclusion is often that racial and ethnic minorities fare worse. Stage-specific survival is worse. Their mortality rates are often worse. Screening rates are worse. Are worse, incidence rates are higher. So we also wanted to look at these patterns with our measures of progress. And what we find is that, in contrast to many of the conclusions about racial disparities in cancer, when we look at the progress against the burden, we see that there's been greater progress for blacks than there has been for whites, uh, for men. So here I'm showing just the, the offset and the progress, just the right side of those graphs. For white men and for black men. And what we find is that lung cancer contributed to the decreasing burden since 1990 for both whites and for blacks, similar time frame. But the magnitude has been greater for blacks than it has been for whites. So the direct contribution of declining black male lung cancer mortality rates is greater than the direct benefits for white males for lung cancer. Now, one reason could be that there was more, there's been more improvement, that black lung cancer mortality rates are much higher than they are for whites. And so there's more to improve over these last 15 years. Or perhaps we need to think uh, in more detail about the kind of care, the kind of places where the care occurs for blacks and for whites, and look at some differences there. So this is a, a racial disparity story that turns out not to be disparity. But that's not true for breast cancer. For breast cancer, what we find is that the progress has been earlier and greater for white women than they have been for black women. So here is progress for white women. Again, you're looking at the blue bars. And when the blue bars are negative, that's reducing the, the burden. Uh, so that's progress. And the more negative, the more progress. So progress started in the mid 80s for white women, but started later and less consistently uh, for black women. So for breast cancer, we see a similar racial disparity story, that there's been greater and more consistent progress for whites than there has been for blacks. So hopefully I've convinced you that this is a, a meaningful measure of progress against the burden for two reasons. One, it considers cancer mortality rates, so it's a, it's a reasonable measure of progress. It also considers other causes of death, so it's a reasonable measure of the burden at the population level, what kills people. Uh, and the innovation is that we're able to decompose the changes in progress into those two factors that contribute to the progress, changes in cancer mortality rates and changes in the uh, other cause mortality rates. So those blue bars are our measure of progress. So in new work, we're looking at how to use these new measures to assess the value of US cancer care. So we're looking at the cost of cancer care that's reported by NCI in its biennial Cancer Trends Progress Report for the last decade. And NCI uses linked SEER Medicare administrative claims data. So this is Medicare beneficiaries who reside and uh, reside in, in any of the 17 SEER registry areas and who have their medical claims linked back to the SEER registry. There's also uh, Medicare cost adjustment for, for region, adjustment for out-of-pocket expenditures like co-payments and deductibles. And then the costs for cancer patients who are less than 65 are estimated from managed care populations where there's data. So this is our, our, our collective best guess of what the cost of cancer is in any given year, uh, which has been calculated by the NCI. So NCI breaks it up into the total cost, so the first year, the initial cost of cancer, continuing year, and for anybody who dies of cancer in that year, it's their last year of, of care. 
So we're using costs directly from NCI. This is how they, they calculate their costs. And we're looking at the same cancers, breast, colon, lung, and prostate. And we'll look at a 10-year time frame, 1996 to 2006. And the, the way we're going to calculate value is to look at the ratio of incremental costs and incremental effectiveness. So incremental costs are simply the difference of a particular cancer's cost in 2006 and 1996, adjusted for, uh, for inflation. And our incremental effectiveness are these blue bars. It is the direct progress against the burden of that cancer. And it's direct because it comes directly from changes in that cancer's mortality rates. And we, we split apart the indirect effects of changes in all other causes of death. So it's a simple cost-effectiveness ratio, uh, with our effectiveness being those blue bars of ours. So here's an example of the cost of, of lung cancer in 2006 dollars. The total care of, of lung cancer was $6.1 billion. And in 2006, it was $10.6 billion. So the increment is the difference. And that's $4.5 billion. So between those two time periods, there was an extra $4.5 billion spent in the care of lung cancer. And what did we get out of it? What was the effectiveness that we saw out of this investment uh, over that time period? So here's how we're going to measure the incremental effectiveness. So these are those same direct and indirect benefit plots that you saw throughout the talk for males and for females for lung cancer. And we want the blue bars. And when the blue bars are negative, that means that there's been progress. And the more negative they are, like for males, the more progress there's been. The red bars are the indirect effects of changes in other causes of death. So improvement in the care of stroke, of, of heart attacks, that indirectly worsens the burden of lung cancer. So we're going to take that out. So our results gave us blue and red bars, and we want the effectiveness, the direct effectiveness. We're going to take out the red bars, and then I'm going to sum them. So anytime they're negative, that's, that's progress. Anytime they're positive, that means the burden worsened directly because lung cancer mortality worsened. So I'm going to sum them over the same time period. I'll do that for lung cancer, for prostate, for breast, and for colon, and combine males and females. And this is my one equation. I will calculate the value is just the ratio of cost to effectiveness. So here is the sum of each of the blue bars on the horizontal axis. It's the incremental effectiveness in years. And the vertical axis is the incremental cost. And by far, the most cost-effective reduction in the burden of cancer occurred for lung cancer. So it was the greatest direct increase in effectiveness. It was the greatest reduction in the burden, the greatest direct reduction in the burden. So improvements in lung cancer treatment and diagnosis contributed to this incremental effectiveness for the lowest incremental cost. So cancers in this quadrant are the most cost effective reduction in the value. And cancers in the upper right or left quadrant would be the least cost effective. And then there, there are the other three cancers grouped together. They had about the same direct reduction in the burden of about between 0.1 and 0.15 years over this 10-year time frame. But their costs varied considerably. So prostate cancer had about the same direct reduction in the burden for a little over $4 billion compared to not quite $8 billion more for breast cancer. So what we're doing with our next set of uh, projects is to, to populate this more with other cancers. I, my suspicion is that lung cancer will continue to be the most bottom right, the most cost-effective reduction in the value. Uh, and other cancers will have less incremental effectiveness at or more incremental cost. Is the cost including screening? Cost, 
No, these costs aren't including screening. No, so this cost, the ledger starts at diagnosis. So I enter the Medicare registry when I'm diagnosed with, with prostate cancer. My cost of, of screening wouldn't be included in there. It's a, the cost of care. And it also wouldn't include the cost of uh, smoking cessation. No. Which could have had a big effect on that. Right, that's true. So if you add, you know, if somebody's taking Chantix 10 times before they quit, that cost isn't in here. So research money is also not included? No. Uh, no. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a, a real question, right? Because all the cost data is NCI money, right? No, it's calculated by NCI, but it's, it's uh, <laughs> Medicare money oh, for oh, over I, 65. Oh, I see. Uh, but still, if those yeah. expenditures for a given lung cancer patient don't change, yet you've had some prevention efforts, and there are many prevention efforts in society to keep people from smoking. <laughs> and we know the best way to improve mortality rates um, lung cancer-wise, just to get people to stop smoking or um, you know, basically focus on prevention efforts, right? So if you do that and you haven't actually changed the cost of care at all, you're still going to see great incremental effectiveness um, for a very little change in cost. Right. I think yeah, I, I, there's a, a, I think a parallel graph we could make with this. Uh, Right, to try to consider all the costs related to lung cancer. So that would include smoking cessation, now screening. With breast cancer, certainly would include screening. What wouldn't happen is that the, the direct change in the burden would be close to zero. So this is the value of US cancer care. There could be a similar story with the value of US cancer effort, which is much more broad to include uh, everything that happens before a diagnosis, which should happen for the vast majority of people. Right. right, so this is the value of US cancer care given a diagnosis of cancer. It's not including all of the, the monies for research and for prevention and screening that, that would prevent somebody from even being on this horizontal line. Because you have to have a diagnosis of cancer and you have to die within 10 years of that diagnosis to be in this in this line. Also, that that measurement of uh, ten years of diagnosis does that count people who um, who have a relapse in cancer? Is that with is it like the measurement from the first diagnosis or? Right, that's a good question. So if you have a, a secondary cancer, if somebody <coughs> the death the cause of death has to match. So if somebody had breast cancer at I don't know, forty and then had a relapse of brain cancer. Uh, and then that cause of death was brain cancer. Within 10 years, then it would be considered a brain cancer death, not a breast cancer death. And so the clock restarts. So in conclusion, what we did, uh, the innovation of our work is that we decompose the change in the, can the burden of cancer. And in doing so, we were then able to jointly assess progress in cancer and the burden of cancer. So this was the, the charge of the 1990 extramural committee by NCI, is to create a measure that does both assess progress and the burden. So our measure of change is able to do both. We are able to directly look at changes in cancer mortality rates that come from the joint effort of cancer prevention, screening, and treatment. And the, the important indirect benefits that come from changes in the care of other causes of death, which are increasing our, our, our longevity. So what we find is that whereas many have concluded there's been stagnant progress against the leading cancers, we use our measure which is both looking at the burden and progress. And we find that there has, in fact, been progress much longer and much earlier than people have considered. So it's a different kind of, of measure that jointly measures progress and burden. So others have looked at prevalence and years of life lost. Uh, those are good measures of burden, but they don't consider progress. 
because of these confounding issues. And then others have suggested measures of progress, which are good measures of uh, changes over time, but they don't explicitly incorporate other causes of death. So by using our measure, we can more accurately reveal the aggregate contribution of, of prevention, screening, and treatment on the burden of cancer. And in doing so, we can distinguish the effects of cancer care from the effects of, of care from other causes of death. And in new work, what we find is that the cost of, of progress changes, varies considerably among cancers in the US, and it would certainly vary considerably in the US compared to other countries in Europe, for example. So uh, that's the formal part of my talk. I'm happy to take any questions about changes in the population or the burden of cancer or any other questions you have now. Yep. Congratulations on your work, and thank you for validating and proving that all the work that we do in this field <laughs> um, makes a difference in cancer care. Um, my, uh, my comment and, and kind of a question um, is related to the uh, racial disparities. Mm -hmm. And um, I noticed that you uh, you said for, for lung cancer, it doesn't make much of a difference. You didn't see any racial disparities. But for breast cancer, you did. And I, maybe I postulate maybe it's because of the effect of screening, because we don't have good cancer, you know, good lung cancer screening yet, or it hasn't been really instituted, whereas um, screen, uh, the mammographies are kind of, um, more mainstream. And, and probably just that points to the access of of um, screening is lacking in, in the minority population. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any other reasons that that might be? I, I think your reason is, uh, is it makes a lot of sense that if there is effective screening, and let's say that breast cancer screening is more effective than at this time non-existent lung cancer screening or not effective lung cancer screening, then whites who screen on who had higher mammography rates less of them would be exposed to the risk of, of dying of breast cancer. Their stage at diagnosis was earlier. As you were mentioning lung cancer, half of lung cancers are now stage four, so presumably earlier in time, even more than half were stage four. So there's not much room for, for gain. And so the, the field was more level for lung cancer between blacks and whites than it has been for breast cancer which is maybe why we see that consistent racial disparity story with breast cancer and not with lung cancer. It's interesting, I didn't show this result, but when we looked at racial disparities for prostate cancer, we found that the direct reduction on the burden of prostate cancer was greater for blacks than it was for whites. Opposite to how we often see racial disparities for prostate cancer, it's usually Blacks have worse stage-specific survival, worse standardized mortality rates, worse incidence rates. We have struggled with that. And we're thinking maybe it has to do with more aggressive treatments. It could be that there was more room to gain for blacks because their rates were higher. So there might be this plateau that whites are closer to the plateau than blacks. And so there's more room for improvement. <coughs> I was just wondering if you could do this at a more regional level, like maybe at the state level, and that would allow you to compare the relative effectiveness of different state um, systems. Yes, I think we can. Uh, we didn't see much difference between population level cancer mortality rates and these <laughs> SEER-based cancer mortality rates. The advantage with SEER is that you know the date of diagnosis, and so you can filter out the the legacy cancers, so to speak. Uh, given that we didn't see much difference, we could certainly create uh, state-level population cancer mortality rates and try something very similar. I'm wondering if there would be much difference. Yeah, there could be. There's a lot of regional differences in, uh, in cancer, and especially cancer mortality, and in screening. So. There could be a fair bit of a difference among states. 
Sometimes in, in these sorts of uh, competing risk calculations, uh, that assume that the uh, distributions are sort of independent. Right. Is, is that working here? I wonder, you know, like, so if, if they weren't, you know, uh, if, let's say, statins preventing cancer, vice uh, versa. Right. Uh, would that affect these calculations? Yeah, uh, and that's, a, that's an important assumption that, that we made. Uh, we invoked independence. So we said that the probability of death of dying of cancer is independent of the probability of dying of something else. And changes in those probabilities are independent of changes in, in other causes of death. But as, uh, as Tor mentioned, suppose we could take statins and prostate cancer, or we could take smoking. Let's take smoking. Smoking rates have declined steadily, more for males than for females, but both have, have declined steadily and have surely contributed to the decline in cardiovascular disease. Those have also contributed to the decline uh, in lung cancer. So as less and less people smoke, less and less people are exposed to the risk of dying of cardiovascular disease, who in later life might be exposed to the might be exposed to more risk of lung cancer if there's this higher propensity to have a malignancy or they may go down to baseline. One of the challenges is that you, you can't test the assumption that you invoke. And so uh, we went with a conservative assumption. But I think the reality is that certainly risk factors affect all causes of death. In this, in this joint environment, we could see some differences in the, in the results. I, I wonder what you're missing by the 10-year cutoff also, because especially with prostate and breast cancer, you don't have recurrences 20 or 30, even 30 years later sometimes. Right. And the longer they go is actually a measure of the effectiveness of the adjuvant therapy for mm -hmm. recurrence. Right. So if, suppose somebody was diagnosed with breast cancer in a SEER registry area. He went 10 years cancer-free and then was diagnosed subsequently with a recurrence. As long as she still lives in the SEER area, she still counts. We miss people who move, but most people don't move. But in prostate, I thought you said you don't count them if it's greater than 10 years after their diagnosis. Right. So if, if a, a man is diagnosed with prostate cancer and dies within 10 years of his diagnosis, he counts. If he dies, if the death certificate says prostate cancer 12 years out from his diagnosis, in this main analysis, he doesn't count. But we, we vary that from two and a half years to 15 years, so two and a half year incremental increments. Um, and we didn't see much difference. Uh, and the, the worry that with that is, is to address the bias, the ascertainment bias, that death certificates are more likely to say death from cancer if somebody had cancer. So we, we try to mitigate that by, by varying the window. So you know, we take this That's a great question uh, that's happening. That, that process, I think, is happening with a lot of cancers. Because we're looking at measures of mortality, and because we are restricting the amount of time that can occur between a diagnosis and, and death, I think our results are largely insensitive to changes in, in screening practices and diagnosis practices. 
this is only one measure that can jointly assess progress and burden. There certainly are other measures. If those are incidence-based, they could be, because we're looking at changes over time, there could be lots of spurious changes that only have to do with changes in, in diagnosis. But I think in the same way that mathematically we decompose these differences and differences, you could add more to it. And as long as you're able to measure them well, you could look at how much change in screening practice has contributed to changes in the burden in the same way. Well, thank you, and thank you. Um, join me in thanking Samir for